Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Indie Comic Spotlight, the show where we spend time looking at an ongoing series or graphic novel from a company other than the big two. The hope here is that we can do a deep dive on an indie comic you may have missed or give you a chance to talk about one of your favorites with us on social media afterwards. I'm your host, Tony Farina of DC Comics News and Fantastic Universes. I've been reading comics since I was 12, and while I love a good superhero battle, I gravitate towards indie comics and standalone graphic novels because they give artists a chance to connect with readers in different ways and tell stories they may not have been able to tell with traditional comics or traditional novels. I hope that you enjoy the show. First... There was the DC Comics News Podcast. Then came the Spinner Rack. And now, the third show brought to you by the guys that brought you all that other stuff I just mentioned. I Am The Night. A story about the stories. A show celebrating Batman, the animated series. Week by week, episode by episode. Just when you thought it was safe to put on a pair of headphones, I am the night. Well, my guest today is my first return guest from across the pond, my good friend, Steve J. Ray. Steve, welcome back to the show. Thank you for letting me back on and getting me back out of the asylum. Yeah, well, you know, for sure, I'd imagine... Um, well, your asylum is different than my asylum. We are recording this during the lockdown. It may come out at a different stage of the lockdown. I've got a couple of other guests coming up that I have to like do quick turnarounds on. So this may come out maybe a month from now. Um, but we're recording it from the lockdown. How are you holding up? Loving it. Loving every second of it. I'm home with the people I love. I've done more writing, research, podcasts, and fun work than I have in years but um, it's going to quieten down for the next two or three weeks because my wife's now on furlough so they, they, she works for three weeks has three weeks furlough so she's now off so I'm going to spend more family time and do my that's, stuff in the evenings that's so great it's going to change that's a good. little bit yeah, but awesome you want, yeah awesome. you want that for sure absolutely awesome. yeah you guys started that and I, um, the, I think I'll probably have the promo people will have already heard either before or after the show there'll be a promo for the Harley Quinn cast which you guys started um, how's that going? Oh, it's hilarious because we're our best behaved journalistic selves on a Saturday night when we record the new show. But then on a Friday evening when we do Harley Quinn, we can just cut loose, swear, laugh, uh, make inappropriate jokes and generally have a great time. It, it, it's great fun. And, the, you know, the team, they're all yeah. guys you well, work I'm with. Well, actually, I, awesome. I, have to, I have to pester Brad, Kelly... Uh, by the time this show comes out, Kelly's show will be out. I told Brad he needs to be on your show. He wants to talk to you with, about right. milk and cheese. So, All right. I'll, I'll send him a Slack message for sure. Yeah, because I've already had Seth on, and Kelly's show is in the – the, the listeners will have heard it before they've heard this, which was great. We did uh, Cullen Buns, Harrow County. Um, and so, yeah, I need to have Brad on. I can get the whole team on. So I'm, my goal is to have everybody from DCN on at some point in time. Josh and I are talking uh, about Amory Wars. So – We'll get there. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty excited. Um, Well, today, though, so today we kind of pulled an audible, so there'll be a future show where Steve will be back on and a previous guest um, uh, from the the 20th Century Geek himself, Scott Scott Weatherly, will come back on. We're going to do a two-part crossover uh, where part of the show will be on my show, part of the show will be on 20th Century Geek to talk Halo Jones because... Um, they are the experts in 2000 AD, hands down, and I am a newcomer to it. Um, and so, but 
Scott had something come up, no, you know, and we love him and we will definitely do that show. So uh, Steve and I Absolutely. audible and we're like, all right, let's stick in 2000 AD. And Steve said, here's the book we have to do. I will leave it to you to tell everyone what it is and why you picked it. Well, we were going to do Alan Moore's um, lesser known masterpiece of Halo Jones. So I thought as that's quite a deep artistic, I mean, still very funny book, but it's, it's, it's a lot deeper and it's a lot more meaningful. I thought, let's go completely to the opposite end of the spectrum and show Alan Moore his most playful best with two delinquent characters. Ladies and gentlemen, Tony and I are proud to present Alan Moore and Alan Davis's DR and Quinch. What a crazy book. So if, you, if I didn't know Alan Moore wrote this, if his name wasn't on the front, I wouldn't know Alan Moore wrote this. Um, it is, a, it, now there's, of course, commentary. The Hollywood one, I think, is my, is my favorite one. Um, Hilarious, mine too. Yeah, and we'll go through them all. We'll go through the storylines, the major storylines, bit by bit. And I think that's the best way to approach this. Um, but, it, you know, there's, there's some scathing satire that's still there. You know, like, um, everything Alan Moore does is, he's like the greatest comic book writer who seems to hate comic books. He hates... <laughs> Yeah, you're so right. <laughs> you know, so he hates right. the industry, but he thrives in it. And it's such a weird um, thing. So this is new to me. So let's tell everybody your history with this. Um, it was in 2000 AD. It came out in the 80s. Um, I think the first one though, where they destroy Earth was 83. And then they picked up, they did a few programs after that. Um, and then in typical Alan Moore style, he was done. That was the end of that. And so that's over. <laughs> he is capricious. Without a doubt. So what's your history with this book? Yeah, I was about uh, 13 when this originally came out. And I was a huge 2080 addict. I, I bought it every single week. And it was just one of those books where UK writers and artists could go crazy. It was mainly black and white in those days. Uh, and it needed to be because some of the artists that came out of it, obviously, we know this is written by Alan Moore, but it's drawn by another comics luminary alan davis still yeah. to me one of the finest artists particularly of the human form well with a biology major behind him he would be um and this was just it's hilarious because they're two characters who talk and act in certain ways just like surfer bros or 60s stoners but yeah. they are ultra violent crazy psychopaths and that dichotomy is what drew me to it and it was this kind of stuff and then obviously later halo jones that led me to get back into american comics obviously he started writing um, swamp thing and well well you know after that everything else is history you've got killing joke you've got watchman he finished his uh, warrior stories v for vendetta and uh, miracle man originally marvel man but hey marvel can't stand anyone <coughs> billy batson yeah. having the marvel names <laughs> for sure <laughs> that was my intro to it yeah nice Nice. So as a 13-year-old then, um, and now as a, an adult 50-year-old man, the, the different read, and I'm assuming you've read this in between there. So before Thousands we, of times. Before we break it down, you know, episode by episode, um, what was your reaction? Like, you know, I, I was just in one of my classes, so because I teach online, we do online discussion where everything is kind of written out. And we were in, a, in one of my classes, we're having this kind of conversation about perspective and and I realized that stuff that I liked and, and thought a certain way about when I was 13 or 14 or however old, I feel now as 46, almost 47, I feel 
different. It's, I can still like that music, or I can still like that book, or I can still like that show, but it's a totally different perspective on it. And in some cases, some things that I really liked as a child, I don't like as an adult, and some things I didn't get as a child or thought were stupid, I actually like as an adult. So, but you, you obviously still like this. So what was the reaction, though, as a 13-year-old, as opposed to a 15, you know, who obviously now you're a parent and you're a professional, how do you see, um, you know, Waldo and, uh, and Ernest, which are their first names, DR and Quinch, how do you see them differently um, in that time, you know, with that perspective? It's funny, actually, because with this story, and I think I mentioned it to you when we were talking originally about Halo Joneses, I don't think I deserved these as a 13, 14, 15-year-old, because reading it again as an adult and seeing, um, well, we'll talk about the Hollywood one when we get to it, his critique, all of that stuff blew over me. I just thought he was being funny and poking fun at uh, war and at cinema and um tree huggers and everything else that goes with it but reading it again as an adult you can see that there's so much more thought and cynicism um behind it so much more politics than i dreamt of as a child so back then it was just pure fun these two guys were just going around blowing shit up and it was awesome now it's a lot more commentary and some of it is just as relevant if not more so now than it was back then i mean particularly halo jones but we'll talk about that with scott but yeah this story was fun then it's still hilarious, but it's deep now. It's a little bit darker now. Yeah, I, 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 that was what I thought. I mean, there were a few times where I like laughed out loud, and sometimes I was like, "Ooh, that that's supposed to be funny, but that's yeah, a punch in the gut." That you know, so um, especially what happens with uh, Chrissy um, and the gaslighting of her uh, when we get to that story. That was that was horrific. I mean. Um, you know, and again, it, I don't think that Alan Moore, I think Alan Moore gets a rap because he is such a curmudgeon. Um, I love his, I love always love his author pictures too, because he's always just like, and everyone, you know, he doesn't give Amazing. He's scary. He, he is scary. Um, and I was at a midnight, I've watched Neil Gaiman in a midnight reading. And I, that was, that was something he was dressed in all black. It was like 90 degrees in uh, 1990s in Chicago. That was creepy, but I've never been in a room with Alan Moore. I feel like he would eat my soul. Um, he is a scary dude, but he's so, he's got such, uh, like you said, depth. This is a deep book on the surface. It's easy to go, these two college losers. Like, um, so uh, DR, which stands for diminished responsibility. His name is Waldo Dobbs. He is uh, out of juvie and he ends up in college because sure, but he obviously doesn't want to be there. And his, <laughs> his only friend is Quinch, who his name is Ernest Errol Quinch. And we'll kind of talk about his intellectual level, which is obviously greater than uh, DR thinks. And I think that's really funny, the inside joke that the reader so has. Uh, it's really smart. But um, so, you know, on the surface, like Quinch is a pyromaniac and uh, DR is a, is a criminal mastermind. Um, and so you feel like, I've got no way to relate to these guys. They're giant assholes. But really, you, you, they're supposed to be assholes, don't you think? I mean, I feel like... Completely. A, yeah. As a kid, you're supposed to be like, yeah, DR's awesome. And look at his hair. And he looks like a green Brian Setzer. And of course, in the, in the black and white version, they have to describe their colors, which I think is fantastic. Indeed. And the Jamie Delano uh, ones are in color. And so you see what they look like. And I think that's, that's pretty funny. And we're not going to talk about those. I mean, we, we can. I read them. They're not, I don't know that they bring a ton 
they were kind of like they're just separate little things and a nice tribute because uh jamie delano took on a lot of alan moore's uh, characters when alan moore stopped writing so obviously the initial issues of hellblazer was john constantine alan moore created were by jamie delano and they were great and oh, same sure. with Kilroy yeah. uh with um oh night raven um so yeah um I wonder where Jamie Delano is now because I thought the guy was awesome. But yeah, those agony, was it incredibly excruciating agony pages? Yeah, and they're they just they're like advice. Letters. Yeah, yeah, they're just like giving advice. Yeah, I think it's. I mean, it's funny, uh, but it was cool because those were in color, and the cover of my edition is in color, which is cool because they have to describe. You know, and we'll talk about Alan Davis's art and everything. But anyway, so I think when you're 13, 14, like you are like, yeah, those guys are awesome. I want to be like them. And then as an adult, you're like, oh, no, you weren't supposed to like them. And the mm -hmm. what Alan Moore does, you know, it's like with Watchmen. People love the comedian. He's a monster. People love Rorschach. He's a psychopath. If you love the, if you love Rorschach, if not like you love him as a character, but you're like, oh my God, what an amazing character. I wish I had thought of Rorschach. But if you like are like Rorschach is right, you're wearing one of those shirts, there's something wrong with you. Um, and, and Punisher and Lobo and Deadpool and all those guys. Yeah, totally. Right. Yeah, it's one thing to like them. Like Red Hood, we talked about Red Hood on Max's show. I like Jason. I like kind of the darker version of the Bat universe. But it's not like... And I had a Red Hood shirt for sure, you know, just his his logo because I had all the Bat Family logos on shirts. But I am not like Jason Todd was right. <laughs> it's not necessarily like you should go on a. That would be scary. Yeah, for sure. So I think what Alan Moore does, um, and I would love to hear your thought on how you think he pulls this off. What is it that he does that makes readers um, uh, like relate to or find? find appealing characters who are really, like if you met DR or Quinch, maybe not Quinch because he can't talk, um, but if you met DR in the world, you'd be like, that guy is, I can do, tell your kids, don't hang out with him. But you like want to read more about him. What do you think that he's doing that, that he manipulates us as readers in that way? Well, he was a genius for a start because the key demographic to 2000 AD um, is mainly teenage dudes. And he made Waldo and Ernest teenage dudes. And they were teenage dudes that had the financial backing to go out and buy weapons and blow shit up. And us boys like our movies with huge explosions and big weapons. But they took that and actually did it. Which at the time, like I said, as a teenager, oh, this is hilarious. Reading as an adult, it's terrifying. But making them green and purple skinned versions of ourselves at that age was a stroke of genius because then you also feel the fact that okay yeah the teachers are bullying them they've gone to juvie they feel hard put upon like every teenager in the world does the whole falling in love bit it's just you see a little bit of yourselves in these two psychos and that's what alan moore does he makes the most wacky surreal out of their shit seem normal and that's part of his genius yeah, I agree. I think what he does, you're right, is that we've all felt put upon. We've all felt like we want to retaliate in the way that some of his characters do. You know, like again, Rorschach, people love him. Well, okay, but is that is that the way to is that the way to go about things? Nope. <laughs> but but you like there's a part of you that's like, I'm glad Rorschach's out there doing it so I don't have to. And I think you're right, like this idea of this is what it would be 
And, and, and you talk about like as a 15 year old, I'd imagine this book, you'd like, like bust a gut laughing, but I still laughed when I realized what he's doing. When you, oh, it's hilarious. It, it is really funny in that it's not, and keep in mind, everybody, this isn't funny. Like, haha, milk out the nose. You know, Tina Fey wrote a joke funny. This is like real good, dark yeah. humor. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Dark, dark humor. It's, it's, um, Stuff you're laughing at, but sometimes it's nervous laughter, and that's that's the genius of it. The war app is the war one for sure. There's some, uh huh, yeah. And so, well, let's go through them little by little. So, the first issue of uh, Doc, the DR and Quinch is they are we learn that they manipulated Earth so that we exist, um, but it is told in such a way that you think they're going back in time to, um, to make Earth differently, but what you learn is Earth had evolved in a totally different way, and they needed to pull like a cosmic prank, which the payoff of, I don't think we should spoil, but oh my God, that was really funny. They essentially manipulate Earth, and they go through all of the time periods, and this was the very first one, and to me, this is the most laugh out loud, silly, funny, brilliant thing. It's not my favorite, but I think it's the most slapsticky. Um, you know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, what happens, what he's commenting on us as humanity? It's hilarious because this was, um, 2008 was famous, not just for its main characters and ongoing story arcs and some of the epic sagas it produced, but it had classic one-shot stories called Time Twisters and Future Shocks. And the initial DR and Quinch story was one of those. It wasn't actually a DR It was DR just a Quinch. time twister. It right. was literally yep. a time twister. And what it is, is it's in the title. It's um, literally stories that twist your perception or the character's perceptions in the stories, their perceptions of time. And continental shift and dinosaur bones and how we see the world from space, all that plays into it in a genius way with a fantastic punchline. But that story generated so much fan response and letter writing because that was what we used to do back in the day obviously you probably remember writing letters to I comic do. books we've all done it back then um led to two other things thinking well hang on um alan moore's starting to become a name everywhere now by the time he started writing the main dr in quinch and halo jones his name was already being touted everywhere they said these two characters are great this has got a great response let's see if we can um make this story larger and wider and then they, they got their own series which ran for a couple of years after that and this story like you said this is the one that makes you laugh but it also makes you think because Douglas Adams also did it brilliantly whereas little things can mean something completely different in a different part of the universe um, I'm having a completely different change in my lifestyle it was a huge insult that caused war across the galaxy in Douglas Adams universe and um, what the world looks like from space yeah. means different things to different cultures it was brilliant well, this is, this is that. I mean, this is a love letter to that too, right? Don't you think to Hitchhiker's Guide? I could definitely feel it, but I think they were more contemporaries. I don't know. Oh, no, no. Hitchhiker's oh, Guide was late 70s. You're right. This is definitely a love letter to Hitchhiker's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And, it's, and that's okay. I mean, and I, don't, and I don't think, it's not a ripoff in any stretch of the imagination, but it is this idea of what I think is great. And, and I, I, you know, what I find fascinating about, you know, the concept of alien life forms or whatever, they're alien to us. We're aliens to them. We're these primitive, yeah, totally. You know, swamp dwellers. And that book, this that time twister, really acknowledges we're kind of primitive swamp dwellers who are easily manipulated. And this one, when you said how relevant it is today, man, reading that and how easily swayed 
people are. So like in this, they go mm. in time as they, as they jump through time and they see, like they set it up, they rearrange the planets, they make Pangea break apart, they, um, they put life in the ocean, they radiate things, they do everything. And when they finally get to humanity, they were just kind of like wandering around staring at the sky. So they taught them how to be violent. Um, and then of course, we never stop, humans never stop being violent. And I thought, oh my God, this, this idea of, of, of embedded violence in humanity uh, is, and how easily we are manipulated to violence. Um, watching in, in my country, armed protesters, armed people walking in, I'm originally from Michigan, yeah. armed people walking into the state capitol. And I used to work at a community college literally a quarter of a mile from that building. I could walk past That's it. Scary. Yeah, so to think like there's people I know, now granted the college is shut down right now because of the pandemic, but it's like, you know, I would park, my, my faculty parking, I would see the Capitol. I would drive past the Capitol Dome every day. And to just think like, there's just people wandering around out there with AR-15s while there's could in theory be college students there. <sighs> you know, and they're college students who do live in that neighborhood. So it's just like the, the, the way that we instantly jump to violence is such a is such an interesting thought that these two idiot you know kids are the ones who who taught us that but that it's so ingrained in us now that thousands of years ago hundreds of thousands of years ago we learned about violence so now we can't let it go um do you think that's true i mean you know this is a pretty violent book but the violence while to dr and quinch it's like super awesome blow shit up and like you said 50 year old girl you're like woo explosions woo um, and you look, I love a good action movie. Um, I want to see somebody get kicked in the face, but I also like it to be uh, fake. <laughs> uh, this is so real and visceral. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm rambling. I'm sorry. What are your thoughts, man? No, I completely agree with you. It's genius in a way because we've always had the arguments in society whether what's more powerful in humanity, nurture or nature. But with what he does in this first story, it's both because mankind are walking around like a zombies, like, uh, what's this? What's that? Oh, a bush. And, and he then first fire, then hitting each other with blunt instruments. And that's bred into them by the aliens. But then obviously that becomes our nature over time. So are they one and the same thing? And he tempers it with that brilliant humor, like, um, yeah, we just fired radioactive stuff into the slime until stuff started moving and came out, and it was really disgusting. But hey, that's life. That's life, right? That's <laughs> the life. Yeah. yeah. I loved it. Brilliant. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Um, and I, I can see why people really wanted more of this. I can see how this was a one shot, and people were like, no, no, we they, these guys clearly have more adventures um, in them, and we need to see it. And I'm glad that that happened. Uh, because I think uh, it gives us a lot to talk about, not just on the show, but in the world. Like, I think, again, Alan Moore knows how to capture time. Um, he's always of his time. Well, everything he does is of his time, but it also transcends it. And I know that's just like, it makes it sound like I ate an edible and I'm trying to sound smart. Um, it's true, though. It's totally true. He um, He is a guy who, and I think that's what visionaries do. I would call him a visionary. I think Watchmen was, was a visionary title. V for Vendetta, obviously. Yeah. And this, and as silly as this is, these, this green and purple guy, I think there's some visionary commentary here. Um, when something can be written in the, in the early 80s, and like you said, when are they supposed to be from? You know, like, 
that could be from the 60s. I don't know, you know, he's because his hair, he's kind of got the Elvis hair and he talks. Totally. Yeah. He talks, uh, DR talks like he's kind of a, like a beatnik almost. Um, like I said, to me, he looks like a green version of, do you know Brian Setzer from the Straight Cats? Do you know the band? Of course I do. Love those dudes. That's Straight who I think of. Truck. I love yeah. that. Yeah, Runaway that's what he boys. looks like. Yeah, that's what he looks like to me. I was like, wait, because when you see him in black and white, you're like, oh, look, it's a, it's an alien version of Brian Setzer. All he needs is a rockabilly guitar. So that's kind of how he dresses. You know, he's got like this black vest and he, um, and, and there's just something about that character that because he's timeless, because we always recognize like that stuff, there's certain styles that never go away. Like Elvis is still the king, right? Like Johnny Bravo came at a certain time, which was obviously a send up on Elvis. And there's always going to be a place for somebody with a big pompadour who's like, hey, who, and, and so that's how he transcends everything by creating a character that you don't even know when he's from. I mean, he's obviously from way in the future in a different planet, but that sensibility of kind of a punk ass kid who thinks he knows more than he does uh, is so smart. A rebel without a clue, perhaps. That's maybe that's exactly what he is. Very well said. <laughs> Very well said. I agree. Um, well, the interesting thing, let's talk about the fact that, the, that in the world where they live, Quinch is a rich, spoiled, fat, purple, rich kid um, who is a pyromaniac, but he doesn't speak. He says, Right, he says. But I would love to be sat in a room with Quinch, Hodor, and Groot at the yeah. table. That would be <laughs> awesome. But what I love is that his internal. The, there, he writes some of the stories, and his vocabulary is totally different. Huge, yeah, yeah. way yeah, better than Waldo's. Oh, without a doubt, Waldo is who he is. But Ernest is this, um, he's a nonverbal genius. So there is such a, a, a comment there about the quiet ones, right? Like the quiet ones are smarter than you think. The quiet ones are more dangerous than you think. Um, it's always the quiet ones. It's always the quiet ones, right? And I love that. It was so brilliant. The very first one, the first program is actually written by Quinch. It's not, it doesn't say Alan Moore and Alan Davis. It says E.E. E. Quinch and Alan Davis. That's who gets the writing credit. Yep and the program yep. card. And um, it was so good. And there's, and I actually kind of missed that. There's, eventually it turns into Waldo being the narrator. There's a couple more that are narrated by Quinch here and there. Um, but what do you think about that? What, is, what do you think Moore is trying to tell us? I mean, it's always the quiet ones, but it's always the quiet ones who do what? Like beware the quiet ones or take the time to get to know the quiet ones. Most comic nerds, like you said, this is geared at four, you know, 14 year old dudes. Yeah. How are they supposed to? You know, what, how do you think they would relate to that guy? See, the thing is, you and I both know that in our fandom, both polar opposites exist. There's the, I will say, and I'll probably think I, I, I would estimate it around about 80% of comic fans are just people who love what they love and want to share that love with everyone else. And whether they hate something you like or not, they won't dwell on it or rub your face and say okay yeah that, that was cool but wasn't my cup of tea um let's try something else then you get that other 20 percent, and this is the trolls and the twitter blasters and everything else that just want to share misery and even when they call themselves fans of something they're only fans of blowing out when that thing they're a fan of goes the other way and it's the same with these characters yes they're 
They talk like surfer bros. They talk like they could be your best friend, but they will just as happily shoot you in the face. And I think that's what Alan Moore say is that, yes, sometimes the people you're not noticing are the people you should be because of the best friends you can have. But also sometimes these people um, get to know them, but be careful. <laughs> I, I agree. Literally those extremes, yeah. No, I think that's true. And I like your, your comment about um, the fandom. And I think you could almost look at the, these two guys and maybe he's putting a pulse on, you know, putting his fingers on a pulse. Totally. Yeah, like, because Quinch is just quiet. He's like, right? He just goes, he r- rolls with things. He'd be the guy if you were like, oh my God, I love whatever. He's like, cool, I don't care for that, but cool, that's right. And that's what he says. Where you know, where, where Waldo would be like telling you why you're stupid for liking that and try yeah. to manipulate you into not liking it. And, and, in, and, and what ends up you learn is Waldo actually doesn't really like anything. Whereas Quinch has this deep inner life that there's something about that. And I think a lot of comic nerds have that. Like we, we like these stories because they take us places that we've only ever gone in. Exactly that. Yeah, comics give us a place to go. Um, and I love books. I mean, I'm a book nerd. I read, you know, hundreds of books a year. I'm a big Sorry. nerd. But, but I, I, you know, I always am reading comics because there's some, the stories, that's why this show is important to me. That's why this whole network that I'm on is important. The stuff you guys do at the DCN podcast and what we rewrite on DCN and Fantastic Universe. All this is important because for us, for those people like us who have this internal life, it's good to know that there are positive outlets out there like we can be critical of something but we don't hate on it like i can read a book and say like like garth ennis's last run on um the the hard that what was it the heroes the traveling heroes it was like six pack yeah. that was that got so bad those last couple issues were terrible and i reviewed those for dcn and i gave i mean a garth ennis who's garth fucking ennis it was really bad and I even wrote in my review, like, this pains me to say how bad this is because you're Garth Ennis. Like, I, I, I don't want to say, like, you did this one bad storyline, so therefore everything you've done previous to this is no good. Um, but he, so, so even in giving a negative review, I still am like, hey, you know, there's still good stuff in you. There's still good stuff out there. And I think, I think that's kind of who, to me, that's who Quinch is. He's that guy who can just, like, respectfully disagree, and he's got a deep internal life, and he is who, and I love how you said it, he's those 80% of comic fans who just want to love what they love and kind of be left alone. And if they can find a kindred spirit who can share it with you, who come on the show and talk about it and get excited about something that's, you know, was written in the late yeah. then great. And if not, that's also okay. Yep, completely agree. I like you said with Garth Ennis, yes, he had Preacher, but then... Ugh. Uh, even Frank Miller, he's a legend, but he still did Dark Knight Strikes Again and All-Star Batman and Robin, so we all have our good days and bad. His newest, Frank Miller's newest thing, there's a, um, a YA re- retelling, a gender bender version of Arthur, of Arthur, and I thought, oh my God, that's going to be amazing, and Frank Miller did well, Arthurian the, legend? Yeah, it's called Cursed. Oh! On its surface, it sounds amazing, and Frank Miller does the art, and the book just, it falls apart. Um, oh, shame. It, it really isn't his it's kind of like he even phoned in his art and it's disappointing because I got an, an arc of it so I was like oh my god this is going to be so amazing you're right so everybody's got um, something that, that isn't great but then it's how you handle it it doesn't mean that you hate everything whereas like Waldo would be like let's blow this shit up and Quinch is like well let's just sit and think about it so I like that I mean yes he's a, he's a pyromaniac but he still thinks about 
it's not wanton destruction yes. for him. It's like yes. he likes the fire. You know, he's not one of those pyromaniacs who wants to harm anybody. He just likes, he just thinks fire's pretty. Yeah. And we see that when he tries to, um, in air quotes, <clears throat> save his friend from Chrysophrasia. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Uh, well, let's talk before we go. We're just kind of bouncing all over, which is totally fine. Let's talk about Alan Davis, the um, the unsung hero of of this. Love that man. Black and white, but it jumps off the page. Um, and also the letterer, um, I have to say, Steve Potter. He had a lot of work to do. That's clearly hand drawn, and that. Oh yeah, that was all hand lettered. Oh, and yes. that's amazing because Alan Moore has a lot to say, and so Steve Potter had to write it all out. Is really good because there's yeah. not a lot of space for him because alan davis fills a page so talk about alan davis's work in here why does it why does it work why is he the right person for this series he's a, an artist much like um neil adams in his early days who was more grounded in realism and you can see it when he does anything with um, the human form his, his movement is real in places it's poetic it's balletic but he also has a crazy imagination and his facial expressions, um, his caricatures, his alien races are still some of my favorites in comics. Um, and I think that's why he's perfect for this story because he can get these weird alien people and humanize them. Like you said, a Waldo's hairstyle and Queen's just got no hair whatsoever but he's just adorable he's like this big gooey soft teddy bear of a purple skinned lizard thing i don't even know how to describe uh, Ernest, but he's just one of these artists who can draw anything he can draw people at rest he can draw um casual situations and then he can do the action the bluster the bravado the explosions the bullets perfect and they've done so much work together these two let's think back to miracle man uh, let's think back to, I don't know if you've read Alan Moore and Alan Davis' Captain Britain, which had a huge effect I, I on the X-Men. I have heard, yeah, I mean, I know, oh, wow. I know, I know wow. who he is, that's uh, Silac's uh, brother, right? yeah, Brian yeah. Braddock, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I think, I think in the 80s I read some, uh, was he in X-Factor for a while, Captain Britain? Yes, he was one of the founder members of Excalibur. Excalibur, that was it, yes, so that was at the same time, yeah, so in the 80s, Yes, some of him. I never read like any of his standalone stuff, but I like know enough of, of who I know enough to get myself in trouble that right. I remember he led some X Factory type team, Excalibur, which is the best name for a British based mutant team. So couldn't be better. Yeah, those two have done so much work together. This is why um, for 2008, you I think you spoke to uh, Max about this on one of your shows because I heard it. Um, Alan Davis drew uh, Harry Twenty on the High Rock. So he was already yeah. working for uh, 2008 times. So when these two got together, oh man, my heart sank because I was a fan of Alan Davis's art. I was rapidly becoming a, a complete Alan Moore nerd. So when they got together to do this and then got together to do um, the DC and Marvel work, wowza, absolutely yeah. chuffed. So I think he's just perfectly suited for these stories. Um, I can't think of anyone else to do them. Just how I don't know if they ever decide to complete Halo Jones, if anyone else but Ian Gibson should do it. It's just a great pairing. Brilliant chemistry, yeah. brilliant storytelling. Yeah, well, and I think what I love about it is, um, what I think there's, there's, he does facial expressions. Well, not every writer is, not every artist is great with faces. Exactly. And um, when you see, 
on one of the covers, and I'm looking at it, not the cover of my book, but there's a cover, it's in color, and uh, they're both holding glasses, and DR's in front, and Quidditch is in the back. They're smiles, just on that cover. They're, they look, in theory, like it's the same smile. It's just a curve. But the way that their eyes are drawn, that you look at DR and you like, evil, manipulative bastard, and you look at Quinch and you're like, oh, give him a hug. It's amazing. And it's just, the smiles are the same, but because the way that he deals with the way that their eyes are smiling or their eyes are, because, you know, DR smiling, but he's, he's got his, a closed mouth. It's like when Batman smiles, you worry when DR smiles. That's right. And you can see that perfectly in this one picture. Like you could hand this picture to an eight-year-old and say, tell me about these characters just from this picture. And they could give you probably really spot on um, description of their personalities based on just the way their faces look. And I think that is the sign of an excellent artist. Somebody who, and again, Alan Moore's got a lot to say. So it's hard, I think, to be an artist for someone like Alan Moore. And that's why Alan Davis and he are probably work well together because he knows how to get out of Alan Moore's way. And Alan Moore can trust Alan Davis to, to tell parts of the story. Because in Alan Moore's script, in the back of mine, the script is there, like a, a typed script of a couple of the pages. And boy, he's got a lot of detail. But he doesn't have a lot of emotion in there. And that's where Alan Davis has to come in. He can tell you exactly what he wants it to look like. But if, if the face doesn't work, if it doesn't look the right way, if you don't, you can draw whatever. If you're an excellent artist, you can just do a rendition of the word, but there's no emotion in it. And he's such an emotive artist, I think is what I love about him. Exactly that. He's a storyteller. Yeah. He's one of those artists that I call deceptively simple in their style. Because look you look at it, there's not tons of texture and cross-hatching and depth and that kind of stuff in his art. But it's uh, like Tim Sale's the same. They can emote more in a lift of an eyebrow or a curl of a lip on their characters than tons of other artists can do with all the detail in the world. And, and that's why, yeah, Alan Davis is, is, is a consummate storyteller. His characters are just that, they're characters. Yeah, they feel real. And like you said, it's, these are clearly alien cultures. There's no humans in any of these stories, everybody. There's not one human except for when they go to- Two film critics. Oh God, the film critics. That's right. Those are humans, aren't they? Because they go to Hollywood, which is a planet Hollywood, which I thought was funny. So I think that was actually before Planet Hollywood. Oh yeah, years before Arnold yeah, and was, uh, Sly, yeah. That was really funny. Um, but uh, there's, okay, so there's very few humans, but like you said, they all feel like somebody you know, that he gives them that human uh, feeling. Of course, it's written in English. There's a few things that, are, that have some other language. The Marlon Brando character, when we get to Hollywood, Oh, Mumbles, which is hysterical. Yeah. Well, let's go through the stories. I agree with everything you're saying, Alan Davis, Alan Noir, dream team for sure. It's always nice when artists, um, when Ke on Kelly and I, on our show, we talked about how um, uh, Colin Bunn, um, you know, he's, the way that, that he writes a script is so uh, vague so that he just hands it over. Yeah, um, it's more the Marvel style. Yeah, and, and, but it works, you know, because then if you've got the right artist who works with you, which he absolutely does, then there's, you've got a great team. But if you don't, you know, it doesn't work, then you kind of have to, um, I think, I think if you don't have the right combination, Max says this all the time, you can't have a great story with shit art and you can't have beautiful art without a story. And so if you don't have, the, uh -huh. you know, and, and he says that on all of his shows and he's totally right, Max, you are right, always. And um, that's right. It's, that's right. 
Yeah. That's right. <laughs> it's totally true. So um, I think that's why this works really well because they're they're just the right the right team together. So um, so the first story uh, after the time twister, their comeback is uh, a Dr. and Quinch go straight, where they um, essentially get caught being giant assholes like they are, and the judge gives them an opportunity to prove that they're good. And instead of doing that, they hatch like some crazy bananas, like A-team kind of nutso plan um, to get out of everything um, and manipulate the legal system and manipulate soldiers and there's war and, um, you know, the Foyogis. I'm assuming the GH in the name of that alien race is supposed to be an F sound, right? See, that's such a good question. It's something I've always paid on my mind too. I've stuck to Yogi, but Foyogi works. And if you think of the word rough, right, or enough, things are like you'd think, yeah. So I've always had that dilemma too. So, yeah. Well, I think about it is there's a thing I used to do with my, when I would teach uh, writing, I would like, if you take the letters G H O T I, that actually spells fish if you take it out of context, right? So G-H from enough, O from woman, and uh, T-I from station, you get fish. So I looked at Geode, at that, Fiori, and I was like, is he saying, Fiori, what is he trying to tell? Is there some sort of like, fuck you in there somewhere? What is he trying to say? So uh, I played around with it. I didn't have enough time with it. Hopefully, if, if, if between now and the time this airs, I, I, I think I've cracked the code. Um, oh, you're muted. And I'm saying that you and I are on the same wavelength. I completely, oh. I'm glad that you said that because I thought, oh my God, I'm weird. But no, that's what I was just saying to you. Yeah, to yeah. Me that, oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, I totally, I, I totally agree. I, um, I goofed around with it. But anyway, so the Fiotis, that's how I'm going to say F-O-G-H-O-Y-O-G-I, right? There's this alien race. They come up in a couple of things. Um, they, they're, they're at peace, they're at war. These two incite a war to get out of being in trouble. They manipulate everybody. Um, it was really, well, I, I'll shut up. What did you think of that story? Of this story in general, DR and Quinch go straight. What is, what's the commentary they're making here? It's vintage Alan Moore in a way because, uh, and we'll see it again when we come back to Halo Jones with Scott. He's one of these writers that no story he writes, even though it's presented as a standalone story, is a standalone story. This whole thing with Gyogi comes back to bite Waldo and Ernest in the arse yeah. when they get drafted story because this is totally down to them. So used to, uh, um, their world and Gyogi were at peace until they decided to take revenge on the judge who'd sentenced them for crimes they committed. They totally committed. Totally committed, and they deserve the sentence for, but their revenge scheme gets them exonerated but plunges two societies back into war. And this, to me, is vintage more because he's having a dig at certain countries who are still at war with so many other countries and um, how easy it can actually happen over misunderstandings. And it's so weird that I'm a huge fan and fearer of synchronicity. It's weird that I'm rereading these stories at a time when I'm also watching for the first time 
Kiefer Sutherland's designated survivor. Oh, I've not watched that. The, okay. Oh, wow. Um, what he goes through as president, there's so many similarities. And it's hard to say that this is a serious drama, brilliantly produced and acted by wonderful actors. And it's got parallels with the dumbest comic Alan Moore ever wrote. And it's <laughs> genius. It's, awesome. it's so, so clever. I, I just think it's really, really clever, but disguised as, as silly entertainment. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I agree with what you're saying is, is, is it was such a setup and I don't know how far ahead they were planning, but it definitely feels like they were planning ahead because they, they get drafted um, and they're, they're forced to fight in a war of their own creation. And I think to me, and so these will just kind of combine the they go straight and they get drafted stories combined because it all, you know, yeah. girl crazy kind of matters. Well, um, we'll, we'll yes, <laughs> because in the war story, Chrissy shows back up, but um the, the, that to me is the most disturbing and not like disturbing, like what the commentary that Alan Moore makes in the girl crazy story to me is really like disturbing, like toxic masculinity, which wasn't even a term. Oh yeah. And, it, um, and it's really, it's crazy because it's Quinch who does the, who does it. Um, it it's anyway, we'll get there. So, um, so these two stories, this story and they get drafted are combined. And, and I think what you're saying is right. That, that Moore is telling us the stupid shit that you do, um, you think you're getting out of something has yep. term ramifications. And, and that ties into the original story of how Quinch and DR go back to the beginning of earth and they manipulate earth so that things happen and, and there's consequences to it. And at the end, you know, there's a punchline, which is funny. Um, but it was a long way to go for that. But the commentary there is, you know, act, act, things come back to get you. And this is something Alan Moore does. That's what Watchmen is about. That's what V for Vendetta. Oh, yeah, everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. What you do, Swamp Thing, there's, there's always things that you think you're doing. You have to live with the consequences. And in this like silly, like you said, silly kind of dumb ass, dumb kid book, there's a real commentary on, look, man, he's writing this in the 80s in the height of the Cold War. Right? Exactly that. So, yep. so, and as a British person, I... I I, being American during the Cold War, I know what that was like for us because we're the idiots who are ramping up our nuclear arsenal and forcing Russia to. You guys are right in the middle, literally, geographically. What, what was it like in the, what was the Cold War like for you guys? Is, is, and I'm assuming that's what his commentary is. It's like, you idiots, you think you're stopping war by ramping up these nuclear arsenals. And of course, what is it that, that Quinch and Waldo loves as nuclear weapons, right? They, 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 it's their favorite. It's their favorite weapon. So what was it like for you guys there? What did, what did the British people, and I know you were only like a teenager at the time, but, but you know, at, when this came out, the Cold War in the 80s really ramped up for, you know, because of the nuclear weapons. What was it like for you guys? What did you think about it? Very similar. Uh, and again, for me, it was terrifying in many respects because obviously I was a teenager. I wasn't like a kid. I was starting to understand politics. I was in high school. And we were earning things in history uh, as simple as uh, world wars being started over arguments about telegraph poles. Right. And this is that all over again. This is two stupid kids wanting revenge on an adult who dared to cross them. And it leads to war being started quite literally. Yeah. And that whole thing about repercussions and cause and effect and everything else was something that Again, we were learning at school, and it comes into effect again later on with one of the other stories. Um, that it was, I'm of uh, mixed race. Um, uh, I 
half Spanish, but uh, my father's side uh, was Asian and uh, Persian. And obviously Persia, as you know, it's not one country anymore. It's Iraq, Iran, Syria, Kuwait. And lots of my family were literally thrown around those four countries because of war. So when I was growing up reading this story, it wasn't just the Cold War. It was seeing everything else. It was um, the hostage crisis. It was was all that other stuff. And being partially raised by grandparents as well, who were terrified and had to flee their own countries and everything else, it was really, really eye-opening reading this because I thought, yeah, this is entertainment, but there's so much truth here. And it's still true today. And that's what you don't mean. Like you said, visionary is the perfect word because it's, it's, it's that aid old adage, isn't it? That sometimes the more things change, the more they stay the same. So it was brilliantly entertaining. It took me out of my panic and fear, but it also underlined it in a weird way, if you get what I'm saying. I do. No, that's really well said. I think, and I think that's what good art can do, right? And that's 2000 AD is art. I mean, it is really what a shadow of a doubt everything that they do on its surface it looks it's a punk rock it's the punk rock of comic books right same era as well 1977 yeah. is when it launched yeah right yeah it, it, it um which you know the ramones are in my top you know five favorite bands they there's love can't see and i've got a ramones lunchbox up there they um yeah when my kids were little they could name all the ramones um all of them you know the different versions of the ramones so that was parenting done right that's that's right. Like, you don't need math. Let's talk about their month. But uh, it's so stupid. But it's true. Uh, so the thing about it is, is it's really that sensibility of, um, you know, shit's bad, and you know these these guys are idiots. And and I think Waldo being um, so charismatic and charming, but a psychopath, is is also interesting in that uh, my current somewhat charismatic and psychopathic leader of my country with bad hair um i can't help but see the troublous yam yeah <laughs> that's right the troublous yam i can't help that's a that's a little more on the nose because uh, that's current but um uh, i couldn't help but seeing some trumpiness in waldo uh, like again uh-huh you know like look man the things that you shit that you're doing that you're fucking telling people to drink bleach and then they are and you're yep. telling people that they don't have to wear masks you're not wearing a mask and then like in my state, two days ago, 1,200 new cases. Terrifying. But it's terrifying. And it's like, look, okay, you can just admit you were wrong about something, but you continue to do these things and your actions continue to have consequences. And, and, and you know, in this particular case with the pandemic, you're continuing to, to kill people. There was just a study released yesterday that said in counties in the around like different counties that, um, that voted Trump, there's a higher rate of coronavirus in those counties, and it's not because... Hmm, interesting. Right? It's, huh, look, there's consequences because you're telling people that it's a hoax, and so they believe it's a hoax, and that's just bananas. The best thing that happened to your country is that Boris got it, because now he can actually say, this shit's real, man. Yeah, he got it about three months too late, but yeah, he got it. Yeah. It was too late, but at least by him getting it and then coming out and saying like, oh, this shit's real. Um, and he could describe what it feels like. I mean, I'm glad nothing, you know, I'm glad he recovered because that's important. And I just, it's like, that's what needs to happen, right? The people who, who don't believe it. And so the, the consequences for DR's 
at Quinch's actions is they have to go to war that they created. Like that's the ramifications. Hilarious. It is. It Genius. Is. Let's talk about the war. What happens to them there? It looks very Vietnam-y. Um, and keep in mind, so this was written in 84. By the time they go to get drafted, it's probably 84, towards the end of the run. Um, but Vietnam, you know, hadn't been over for 10 years. It's, it's like 10th year anniversary of it being over. Um, and again, I don't, you know, how different countries react to it. Um, you know, Vietnam, obviously in America, was a, there were a lot of soldiers killed, but I know British soldiers lost their lives in there too. What was, what was um, obviously there's commentary on the Vietnam War and them going to work. Again, what was the, what was it like for you there? It's fascinating, and I'm really glad you brought that up because the the Iron Quinch get drafted story works on so many levels, and it's a critique of war and all the wars. I mean, from the stupid little things like uh, the battle cries, the marching songs when they when they're marching through the slime forests, oh, and they're like, "This goes on for sixty five more yeah. verses." Yeah, yeah, and it's just brainwashing. And, yeah. And Waldo's poems, which, again, Wilfred Owen and Siegfried Sassoon and all the wonderful. And this is stuff I was learning at school at the time. So obviously, I am learning about the horrors of war at school. And I'm reading this comic and it's, yeah, it's fun. It's action is these two crazy guys with weapons. And but then you see prisoner of war camps and escaping from them and the crazy plan. The crazy plan. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. Dress. Yeah. Oh my God. And those parallels that Alan Moore might be writing about two crazy, violent, sociopathic, psychopathic individuals who love war, but when they're thrown into the heart of it, their buttholes are puckering just like ours would. Oh, and yeah. those commentaries and the war poems and the songs and them being caught at the end of one chapter between the two opposing forces that they're responsible for. That they did. Yeah. That was Genius. a beautifully drawn panel. It was so chilling. It was funny. And it's like, that's what you kind of get what you deserve. Right. And it's, it, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Really, really clever. So I'm so glad you brought that up because it's not, it's just like I said, Vietnam is still having an effect. Of course. And when you think, I don't know if you guys got a track, a dance track, uh, at around about, I would think it'd be around about 84, 85, actually. 19. Called 19 by Paul Hardcastle, exactly yeah. that. Um, which this very talented musician literally saw a documentary in the Vietnam War that blew his mind. And he took that commentary and put it to a beat. And literally, how painstaking must it have been to have gone through that two-hour TV documentary? make a four or five minute track and to his credit he gave a co-writing credit for the track to the the writer and, and producer of the documentary and yeah that war damaged the psyche of people around the world and alan moore's taken that and made it an entertainment but an entertainment that like you said with all good art even once you shut the pages will resonate later and yeah. here we are 30 years later talking about it yeah and i think what what i think is important is I, I, after i finished reading it you know it, it is not my favorite alan moore thing but it's you know it's a it's good it is there's a lot going on um and and when i look through what other reviews like i always post my reviews like on goodreads sometimes i just give it a rating like i gave this a three out of five it was good 
it's hard not to compare Alan Moore to Alan Moore. So this isn't V for Vendetta, exactly. man. So I'm sorry. But this was what led to his other stuff. This was the first step. Right. Yeah. And you can see that, right? You can always like look at the like early the early stuff of someone and be like, oh, I see what you're doing there. Um, but it's good. It's I think it's very good. Um, you know, it, there's no half stars on Goodreads, so I gave it a three. But there's people who there's like some people who like totally hate on it and give it, and they're like, I don't understand. I don't care about what a couple of juvenile delinquent asshole juveniles do because that's not what it's about we got more more out of it yeah but it, on its surface that's exactly what it's about and that is where the subversiveness comes in is it's like i feel like he's mind warming the dude bras who are reading this who are like haha and of course there's always going to be someone who sees something that is designed to be um more thoughtful and only see the salaciousness of it i watched a movie recently it's a few it's i think it came out in 2018 it was called assassination nation about and, and the title that it was sold as the title itself yeah yeah the title that it was sold as the purge meets heathers and i'm like all right that's i'm i'm gonna watch that i love heathers that was one of my favorite movies so i'm i'm in so it's these four girls who um the whole town turns again and it's all about privacy and the way that teenage girls like they're all 18 and how they're kind of objectified by boys and by men and it's really gross and it's hard to watch and i had to watch it over a couple of sittings but what I said, and I was describing, it's really ultraviolet. So my wife doesn't like super ultraviolet things. So I watched that one while I was on my exercise bike, just like over a couple of days. Um, and when I was describing it to her, what was happening, my concern was that there would be a bunch of like mouth breathing dude bras who'd be like, yeah. And they would miss the point of what yeah. was happening. Like they would totally. get behind the mindless mob of dudes. There's a mindless mob of dudes because there's always a mindless mob of white dudes who do dumb shit. And that's, and of course, these two guys are green and purple, but in the original black and white version, they describe what they look like, but they're all white because it's black and white, you know, there's not. Um, so I think that was really clever too. But anyway, so it's like, if you just want to see stupid adolescent fart jokes and hijinks, that's there for you. But I don't think that's what Alan Moore wanted. And I think that's what makes him a genius is he's always, he's trying to teach you something and that's what makes him good, right? Yeah, you got to peel the onion. It's not just about that brown skin with the fur sticking out of the top. That's just there, and it's there. It's there. It's, there. it's the first thing you see. It's totally there. But with him, and it's in everything he writes, and you can see the seeds of his genius being planted in these stories. And yeah, you're quite right. They're not *Viva Vendetta*. They're not *Watchmen*. They're not even mm -hmm. *Captain Britain* or *Miracle Man*. But you can still see the the his imagination just beneath the topsoil and the little buds coming out of the top of it. And that's why to me, it's actually, I didn't think I'd love it as much as I did back then. Cause I've got the old black and white copy stashed and I bought a copy for my son cause he loved it. Cause I gave it to him when he was about 12, 13 and I've pulled out his book to, yeah. to read. Oh, that. is it? I love that. Cover. Yeah. That's a good one. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> I haven't read it for about five or six years and this whole situation with the coronavirus and watching it again at the same time as I'm, I'm sorry, reading it at the same time as I'm watching Designated Survivor, I've added more layers to that onion and it's brilliant. It is, it. It, it is, it is. And I think, I think that's the problem with Alan Moore. Um, people who don't like him, he's easy to dislike because he makes you look at ugly things. Totally. Yeah. He's showing us the parts of ourselves we don't want to see. And I dig that. 
And it see he could it could be seen like he's glamorizing it, and that's why that movie that's what it made me think of that assassination nation is it you could easily look at that and think the filmmaker is glamorizing this ultra violent behavior and all the dude bra culture, but they're not those are those guys are the villains um and Quinch and Dobbs and Waldo are the villains of their own story they're not heroes, and if you read this and think you if you read this and think they're supposed to be heroes then I think Alan would be disappointed you. But like you said, exactly. it's the Browns, it's there, it's there. It's, the, it's, ooh, look, it's pretty. It's the, what, if you look at the outside of a peach, it's pretty, it's nice to see it, but ooh, it's, that's, but when you bite it, you're like, oh my God, it's a totally, it's, it, it, it's not just pretty to look at. Boy, is it lovely inside and delicious and textured. And that's what this is. It's so smart. And honestly, if you, as soon as you're done reading it, this is a way homer, right? Don't you think you need time to think? Totally, totally. Yeah, yeah. if you're going to read this book, don't keep reading. And then when you're done, spend, spend a few hours staring out the window, listening to music, whatever, thinking. I actually listened to uh, George Harrison's All Things Must Pass right after this. And I actually- Oh, nice. Yeah, I love that album. That's what, let's say it's like a classic album. But I kind of had that on in the background while I was reading it. So then as it was over, I just kept listening to that. And so it was like, you know, George is always making you think about stuff or whatever. So it was just kind of a nice way to like, I was done reading it and I could just kind of hear the music and stare out my window and, and chew on it. And that really met like, and, and the more I thought about it, and like you said, the more you make it, make the comparisons today um, and then think about what it was. I mean, I was alive at the time, you were alive at the time, but I don't think you have to be. That's again, what makes good art is that it was written in 83, 80, 45, but in 2020, it still stands up. Totally. And there's so much stuff that doesn't, that was so amazing back then. I mean, even, even though there's still parts of it that, that, that I love, uh, Frank Miller's Ronin was a lot more powerful then. That hasn't quite stood the test of time in the way some of his other work, or even stuff as, as again, air quotes, simple as this have. So, yeah, completely yeah. agree with you. Well, I think, and, and I think sometimes it's, it's genius in its simplicity. It's, it's, um, I'm, there, we're going to throw visual jokes at the air. We're going to let Alan Davis be a genius, but there's, there's a story there. And to me, the, we'll, we'll save the Hollywood for the end because it's the end and it's, I think, the best. But the most disturbing is the girl crazy, uh, Oof, the gaslighting yeah. of Chrissy. And, and on its surface, like, it makes it seem as though Dobbs, uh, Waldo, DR, he's going to go straight for this, like, straight for this girl. Like, he couldn't go straight before and he manipulated and started a war. But he meets this girl who's the daughter of the drama teacher. And so he signs up for the play and he's gonna, they do this weird mashup of Shakespeare. Um, that's hilarious. Which I think is really funny. It's like a bunch of lines from a bunch of Shakespeare plays all thrown together in one play. And like, how is any of this one story that was really, really funny, but it's not, it's not said what it is, it's just there for you to, to see. Um, but so, so because DR goes straight and he tells Quitch, he's like, listen, man, I'm totally into this girl. Uh, what is her name? Chrysanthemums, but then she becomes Psycho Chrissy. Um, and, and so, you know, she's, she's making him fake pretend to be a good guy because he wants to be with her. And so then Quint shows her, uh, Quint shows her what a monster, because of course he's videotaped everything that he and DR have ever done. Everything. And we'll see more of that later. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? What a, what a crazy, um, Thing to do and so anyway so then she immediately then goes evil and 
to try to win him because she's like, oh my God, I've been acting the wrong way and I love how violent and crazy he is. So she wants to be like him. She wants to be Psycho Chrissy. And then at the end, when all the terrible shit goes down, he completely gaslights her and pretends he doesn't know her and she gets arrested and sent to jail for 50 years. And he's completely fine with that. And that was like a gut punch, man. I was like really... Yeah. Um, yeah. I... Ugh. What are your thoughts on the way that she was treated and what, what's more telling us there? It's still funny as it is with the, some of the best dialogue ever. Oh, God. It's still dark, beyond yeah. dark. It's hilarious too because, again, think about when this was written. It's like the ultimate flip side of Greece because... Uh-huh. He turns into the good boy like in Greece too and um, realizes that no, that's wrong. He's just got to be himself. And then poor old Sandy, who's the good girl in the original Greece, who becomes the leather wearing, smoking, yeah. um, to be what her boyfriend wants, to, wants her to be. And in Greece, okay. it's all innocent and fun and games and rock and roll and whatever else. But in this, it's like she sees that her boyfriend, the, the guy she loves, is a monster. And there's no other word to describe it. No, he right, yeah. Monster. Psychotic, murderous genocidal lunatic but rather than run away from him which is what ernest initially had planned i think i think ernest had oh yeah he wanted her to go this away girl. Yeah. yeah she does the complete opposite oh and God. arguably becomes worse than waldo oh absolutely <laughs> that, that yeah. is terrifying it is your comparison to greece is brilliant i didn't think about it at all but that is exactly what it is yeah yeah that's that's yeah I, I don't i can't believe i missed that oh my god that is totally right that is exactly what it is but again Going down to his his sweater he's yeah it's, it's yeah yeah except at greece they fly off together in a magic car and here he gaslights her and sends her uh-huh. which then she shows up in the war she's in a prisoner of war camp because she, she oh, that deal with the fayogis um to to help like she was going to turn on her own race to help them but then of course they double cross her and put her in a prison camp it's i feel bad for her she does show up at the very end in the delano stuff i think that they become so alike that no one else could put up with either i actually see them becoming the trio of dr quinch and chrysophrasia or crazy chrissy as you yeah, yeah. known. um because like you said in the uh, excruciating agony pages she's back and she's a permanent fixture but part of my heart bleeds for this poor beautiful innocent child and I what know. she becomes but willingly that's the most terrifying thing again she's like the opposite of Harley Quinn, who starts off a monster and realizes, well, she was only a monster because that's what he was. And she grows out of that and becomes an anti-hero and someone genuinely deserving of our praise and recognition. With Chrissy, it's decades before and completely the opposite. And it's just, it's clockwork orange level terrifying. It is, and it is because what he want more is telling women and boys, because the boys who are reading this, is like, you, you kind of have, you can do this. Like, you can manipulate people. You can, um, you know, don't treat women poorly, essentially. And the women in a lot of Ellen Moore's stuff are not treated well. And again, I always re- worry that people, the dumb mouth breathers, 
who who don't get what he's telling you like they don't hear the lesson that he's like he's telling you don't do this where there are yeah probably and there are actually people who are thinking oh yeah this is what he wants us to do and it's the opposite absolutely yeah yeah and i think that's that's also prop that's why art is fantastic but it's also why art takes um time and it's where a book like this is why this show is important and why having you know comic books have more it, it doesn't even matter even if it's just a superhero Batman punches you in the face story, there's still always a commentary there. Like, Batman doesn't kill, so let's talk about that. There's always something going on. Clark loves humanity and he's not human. Let's talk about that. You know, um, there's always something, there's always a deeper level you can see. Yes, Al, didn't Alan Moore cut Arthur's hand off? Isn't he the one who gave Arthur the hook in Aquaman? Was that Alan Moore? You know what? I'm not sure. It's quite possible. I mean, that sounds like the kind of thing you do. Right? He's I, I, notorious for taking a character you love, <laughs> stripping them down, on occasion killing them before his uh, story runs, so he can strip them to their bare essence and then give them that new life. He did it with Captain Britain. He did it with Miracle Man. He did it with Swamp Thing. So, oh, I'm going to have to check that out. You may actually be right, but I know it's definitely Alan Davis who drew it. Right. Well, I, maybe that's what I'm thinking. But, but again, when you think about that, like even at that level, you've got a superhero comic and Arthur, like that is the, that's the best Aquaman story, right? Is when he loses his hand and he's got the, he's got the spear in the hand and he's broken and he's trying to figure it out. So, well, yes, it's one of my favorite Aquamans, definitely. Yeah. yeah. And if you want to watch an amazing superhero story, there's one there, but there's always something under it. And I think that's where Alan Davis, and that's why Watchmen is so important because he's telling us superhero stories can be more than just superhero stories and that's why the comedian is such a villain he's such garbage and, and he's called the comedian yeah Genius. it is and there's right that's the the joke is on you if you like the comedian right so um it's super great um okay the final run the final story um they go, well wait stop sorry what about the brilliant commentary at the end of the war story when they're saved by quinch's rich mom fantastic because Waldo writes to her right at the beginning of the story, as soon as they land on Goyogi. But you still do not expect, because when you think at the end, and he's talking about God, and how we should all be friends, because literally he's caught between two warring armies that he put there. Yeah. And then that ship lands. And it's one of the few other times Ernest says anything other than that's right. Right. And he looks up and he goes, oh, hi, mom. Hi, mom. Yeah. <laughs> It's beautiful. Stoxic smackina of all time. Uh, well, but it is it though, because uh, you're right, it is. I don't like it. was planted. It's both, yeah. So, I hate those. I hate those cheap ways out. And on its surface, it looks like that. But again, what's the commentary? If you're rich, uh -huh. war. <coughs> Trump. <sighs> Trump. Yeah, you can just say it. You don't even have to cough your way through it. Yeah. Captain Bonespur, I believe, is what. Uh huh. Um, Tammy Duckworth, who is a senator from Illinois, who is an army, who is a war veteran, who's like missing limbs, who's like a hero. She, you know, she's missing limbs for serving in war, and she calls him Captain Bonespur, so that's kind of um, traveled around. Yeah, I wanted Tammy Duckworth to run for president because I'm sorry. War hero in a wheelchair versus giant orange melting goo monster. Oh, I want to get Kiefer Sutherland in the White House over Trump. <laughs> for sure. I'll tell you, at this time of my life, though, when this book came out, um, when, uh, when, when the Jamie Delano run on Hellblazer and everything was happening, Kiefer Sutherland was my dream casting back in the 80s, to, or 80s and 90s to be uh, Constantine, a young Well, Kiefer. the look was perfect. Oh, I know. Like, yeah, if you took, like, the Lost Boys Kiefer Sutherland and cut the mullet off, 
Not Perfection. that I, mean, I love Matt Ryan, don't get me wrong, but I think that uh, back then, if they had done it, but it was unfilmable back then. Like there was, special effects weren't good Impossible. enough. No one was going to take the risk. <laughs> to do, uh... do you know who um, Constantine was based on though? He was no. modeled on. Who? Um, Sting from the police. Oh. oh, that makes sense. And there's a wonderful moment in Alan Moore's Swamp Thing where he's going across the bayou in a little um, rowboat and the name of the rowboat is the Venerable Gordon Sumner. Is it really? Sumner Which is, is Sting's name? real name, yeah. That's amazing. But, um, I don't know if you also know that Alan Moore um, created John Constantine, but then went on to meet him twice in real life. Yeah, I'll tell you that story afterwards. That's okay. okay. That's amazing. Yeah. No, I mean, right. Constantine shows up in Swamp Thing, which everybody forgets that he was a side character in a, in a different story. Now First appearance, yeah. Now he's, just like Harley, a side character in the animated series, and now she's one of DC's most popular characters. So it's, you never know just what happens. So, sorry. But this will make this segue into the Hollywood story, and you never know how to get famous because Constantine and Harley are, you know, brand names now, and they were- Mainstays, staples. Yeah. So the Hollywood story is such a dig at pop culture and what it takes to be famous. And honestly, the vapidness of storytelling. And here is a story about two juvenile delinquent fucking assholes, totally, which again, on its surface is bad. And, and there's nothing to like, except there's some fart jokes and they blow shit up and they like nuclear weapons. And you're like, ah, that's funny. Um, but there's such a deeper level there. So the Hollywood story, I think is the smartest one. I, I mean, like, I, like if you only had to, if the only thing you read was the Hollywood story, if you read that first, which is, it's the last one, so you see their growth as a team. But the Hollywood story is so well done. It's so tight. There's nothing missing. It really punches a lot of people in the mouth. Um, and it's the most obvious dig where the other satire is a little deeper. This is like right in your face. So you said, you, we both said off air, this is our favorite one. So why, why is this your favorite story of theirs? for all the reasons you mentioned. The other ones were more, more, if that's even a way of saying it. They were <laughs> more subtle, more dark. This one, like you said, is directly like, totally poking fun at the whole studio system, um, how films are made, the politics, the bitchiness, the backstabbing, the love you to your face, hate you when you turn your back. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's just beautiful. And, what I love about this, and again, something that obviously understandably you wouldn't have got is that when they pick those two film critics when the film's made, those were the two biggest film critics of the time in the UK. Barry oh. Normal is based on Barry Norman, and Clive, who doesn't get a second name, is Clive James. And nice. they look and speak exactly like their real life counterparts. And it's hilarious because when we read a lot of American comic books, we see your talk show hosts and stuff like that, who we don't see over here. So they don't have that resonance. So reading this story as a teenager and seeing those faces, and obviously you and I are film buffs. We love our movies. Yeah. We've all seen films that are touted as arty, again, in air quotes, and you watch them and people have raved about them. And sometimes you watch them and you think, huh? Yeah. And this film, Mind the Oranges Marlon, is oh clearly there. And when you get the critics who sometimes get it spot on, 
but sometimes you know are just completely up the filmmakers butts and are just literally doing it for yeah i'll say nice things about your film hand over the cash and they're saying oh the way it's so beautifully shot and so precisely focused like you'd make it think make you think that it was filming being filmed by a lumbering ox holding a camera <laughs> which is what it was it was, which is what it was. literally yeah. stumbling across yeah. filming everything he pointed at and you think well yeah that's what a lot of film critics do they make something which is average or something you could translate as being good if you really looked hard enough and saying it's 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 brilliant and and vice versa, something that's deceptively simple like this comic book. Yeah. 30 years later being honestly a great piece of art. And that's, that's what I got out of that. It's just brilliant, clever, funny, and irreverent. Lovely. I, I agree. And I think what this, this can only be in 2000 AD. And, and it's, again, we've talked about why Karen started, 2000 AD was her inspiration to start Vertigo. And she, oh, yeah. All the 2000 AD. You can AD see it. Part. Yeah. Well, she, you know. There's a movie, actually, uh, Scott and I talked about. It's called Future Shock. Have you seen it? It's a documentary about 2000 AD. As soon as you said it, I hunted it down. It's on my must-watch list. While it's we're, very while good. We're it's very, very good. And, and Karen's in it, and she talks about how she just, you know, she ends up stealing all of the, <laughs> the 2000 AD people. It was the British invasion to make the Beatles' British invasion look like nothing. Seriously, all yeah. of them. Yeah. American books yeah. now. Yeah, but... And, and it was all because of her genius, but it's also because of what Pat does with 2000 AD. And, and he allows this story to be done. And what Pat doesn't do as an editor, and well, he's not the editor of this. Throg is the editor of, of this. It's not Pat. I can't remember who. who the that's mighty the, Thog. Who is the, who, I can't remember who that is for this run. But the 2000 AD editors, they kind of stand out of the way. And I think the commentary on that is, this is to me a poke at the comics code too. Oh, and, totally the way that the way that comic books were completely um studioized and you see that like listen the, we just found out that the snyder cuts getting released and people are like wait wait how is jo how is Zack snyder who everybody hated suddenly going to be the hero and save the dcu it isn't that everybody thinks it's going to be great it's that we're going to see the movie that he wanted us to see that he made good or bad it's going to exist because it's obvious the Joss, like if Joss Whedon had just been given the keys to the Justice League, that would have been fine. But Joss Whedon had to kind of take bits and pieces and it was clearly an ugly Frankenstein's monster and everybody- And I still feel sorry for Joss because he gets so much of the stick for it. It's totally Warner Brothers' fault. Yeah, well, and I think that's why he really left the Batgirl um, story. He was going to do Batgirl and I think he couldn't come up with a good idea. Well, that's bullshit. You're Joss Whedon. You can't come up with a badass woman story Buffy, firefly i know really that's your thing so clearly he just didn't want to work with them and he let his contract expire and i don't i don't blame him and that's disappointing because of a batgirl movie by joss whedon i was like beside myself um because that's the only you know years ago he wrote a wonder woman script years ago that they rejected because they said it was too funny and he's like well do you want people to see it um and that ultimately they ended up using like the st structure of that for the animated one with Carrie Russell and Nathan Fillion. Yeah, yeah. They kind of used Joss's, he didn't Love get credit, but it was clearly his, the story he wanted to tell. But it, that's the whole point that I think they're making with the Hollywood thing is that studios just get in the way. And sometimes your job is to hire an artist and trust that artist. And yeah, if there's something that's like super out of line, that you don't want in there, fine. Or you don't want it to be rated R and you're like, look, we got to cut it back to PG-13. Got to cut these three things. We'll give you a director's cut later. 
fine. But they get in the way of things and people who don't know what they're doing, they screen test it to death and, or they, they focus group it to death. And I think that's what Moore is saying is like, let artists be artists. Completely. Cause Orange is Orange is Something Oranges is the name of the movie that becomes Mine the Oranges Marlin. And in it, Marlon Brando, the Marlon Brando in this, who is functionally illiterate, gets killed by, was it 16 tons of oranges? Tons of falling oranges. Yes. Yeah, because there's like a bad writer who wrote a, like a fever dream of a script. He dies. They think he dies. <laughs> DR and Quinch steal his script. They manipulate everybody on Hollywood Planet to make their movie because it's this guy, he died, and they like revere him as something. And it was like a kind of the way that what happened to Kubrick um, after he, yeah. died, you yeah. know, the same thing kind of happened, um, you know. Ever. And I, again, it's one of those unpopular things where it's like, Kubrick's fine. I'm, I don't think he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. And I know that. I think he's a very good filmmaker and yeah. eyes wide shut. <laughs> I think he's made some fantastic films and eyes wide and, shut. And, yeah, that's terrible. I couldn't finish it. It's so awful. Um, awful. Yeah, I mean, he, right. Again, I'm sorry. 2001 A Space Odyssey is too long. It, it, watching the movie shouldn't take me longer than reading the book. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Sacrilege. Valid opinion. I understand. Right. But I, but I think the point though is, is that somebody like Kubrick was, was left alone to make that movie. So then I can decide whether I love it or hate it. And I think what you're commenting about the way the critics are like, oh, it's genius, blah, blah, blah. It's one of those things where it's like, well, because yeah. we, we say Kubrick is a genius. So therefore we have to think Kubrick is a genius. And we say the Zack Snyder movies are bad, so we have to all agree the Zack Snyder movies are better. All the Star Wars sequels are terrible. Well, they're not. That's all of that's not true. Yep. Are they better than Empire? No, but are they nope. valid? Sure. And so you just once once it's like this commentary on groupthink, and um, I, I just think it's so brilliant. I think groupthink's terrible, and uh, <laughs> and I think Alan Moore does too. So I don't know. Exactly that. It, it's it's totally that whole thing that sometimes. Anything that's made in committee, while you get lots of people's opinions on it, that's diluting the finished product. And that famous saying, too many chefs, it's a famous saying for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And it, that's, that's right. So what we're, we've come to the end of our um, DR and Quint show. And um, I cannot thank Steve enough for recommending this. I would not have picked it up. I, didn't, I wouldn't have known. Um, it, it is something that... I think um, is worth everybody's time. The final question before you tell everybody all the places on the internet where people can find you, Mr. Ray, um, who would you give this to? I know you gave it to your son, so you can't say him. Who's you? There's somebody who needs to read the DR and Quinch. Who do you hand it to and why? Well, I'm so glad that I'm a returning guest now because that question, the first time you asked me, floored me. I was not prepared. <laughs> not prepared. I thought, oh, damn, so many. But honestly, I mean, I know I can't say my son, but I would actually give it to a father and a son. Someone oh, who's yeah. lived the life and someone who's just at that stage where the uh, explosions and everything else might be entertaining. And then get them to talk about it afterwards. That's who I would give it to. And honestly, if I had my time machine, 
which I think I might have because Terminator was back in the cinemas and Whitney Houston was number one, so my time machine obviously does work. It works, um, for sure. <laughs> but I um, if I could have a time machine and talk to my 15-year-old self about this book, that would be something I'd definitely do too, without a doubt. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's really true. And, and, and you know, the, the message is, is, is there if you want to see it, but it's, it's not like it's super deep. He's putting it out there. Alan Warren's saying like, hey, there's a reason these guys are giant monsters. They look yeah. grotesque and they're, they're, um, they're not your heroes. You're supposed to learn. Sometimes you learn the best. But like, I think my best lessons as an instructor, because I've been a teacher for 25 years now, and I think the best lessons I learned as a teacher were from learning what not to do from other instructors. You know, I had several, yeah, you know, it's like there's several amazing instructors. And of course I learned from them, not just the material, but the way they handled the classroom or the way that like an assignment, but the teachers who are really bad, like, Oh, don't do that. And sometimes it's better to know what not to do. And I think what, what these characters are teaching us of how not to be, there's no real hero in this, in any of these stories, um, except for Alan Moore and Alan Davis for writing it. They're the heroes. And, you know, Pat for creating 2000 AD and giving us punk rock comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like you said, I love what you said, actually. This is social commentary. There's no doubt about it. But it's not standing on a soapbox social commentary. You get out of it what your mind digests from it. And that is art. Yeah. And I love your recommendation to say a father and son should sit down and read this together. That is. Thanks, dude. Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think that's true. And I think, and I think you could, I think a father and a daughter, a teenage daughter could read it too, because it's like, hey, you know. Totally. Yeah. A parent and a child. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. Because it is definitely, Moore was definitely gearing. He knew his audience, which was boys. Um, but, but, uh, you know, it's just like with anything, you know, there's tons of great, I think every, you know, I'm a, I'm a Janeite. We've talked about this. I've got my Jane Aston collection in every room in my house, but, um, you know, I think everybody of every gender at every age read that because there's something to learn from there about how to deal, how to communicate with other people. And, um, I think there's a lot to say here about, um, how to be a good, how to be a good person by learning how not to be a good person. I think. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So the you, Steve Ray, um, are, a busy guy. Tell everybody, and I will link everything, obviously, but tell everybody about um, you and where you are on the interwebs. Very kind, sir. Again, thanks so much for having me back on to talk about these little treasures, which, like you say, so many people would be completely unaware of. And I'm glad you like that. Yeah. Mission accomplished. Thank you. Thank um, you. As for my work, um, most of my damage uh, news, reviews, and interviews can be found on the aforementioned DC Comics News and our sister site, Dark Knight News, where I'm editor-in-chief. And the easiest way to get to both is literally going to your search engine of choice and typing in Steve J. Ray. That'll give you links to all of that stuff, to my reviews and comic book roundup. And also, if you want to read about everything, not just uh, DC, but all kinds of fandoms, go to Fantastic Universes. You'll see Tony's work there as well. And... Um, the podcasts, the DC Comics News podcast, um, the Spinner Rack, which is hosted by Seth, who you also know and have spoken to on this wonderful yeah. show of yours. Uh, I Am The Night, where we talk about the Batman animated series every week and the latest show, uh, Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast, um, which is all of the guys from DC Comics News News show. Um, and Shane has popped in too. Bear. Sorry? And Shana popped Shana's in popped in on yeah. an episode, yeah. Yep. And Kendra, who reviews uh, Harley Quinn for Dark Knight News, is, is there as well. Yep. Anyone who wants to talk Harley Quinn is welcome. Anyone who actually wants to be on the DC Comics News podcast, uh, you should definitely appear on an episode yeah. or five. Yeah. Um, 
do it. <laughs> yeah. And that's well, actually, yeah. find me. And well, talk to me on Twitter. Elstevo, E-L underscore S-T-E-E-V-O. I want your comments. I want your thoughts. I want your arguments if that's what you want to. I just want to talk to people. And if you follow Steve-O, the cool thing is, is because he's, because he's everywhere. Um, and this is, this is the thing you'll find out is that comic book folks are really awesome. Um, like, you know, like Mark Russell goes back and forth with me, Michael Morency, you know, you guys chat on Twitter, you know, one of the best followers on Twitter in yeah, my personal absolutely. is, a uh, uh, Brian Edward Hill. Oh, lovely man. A genius and a lovely man. And, um, so, but if you follow El Stevo, he's got lots of, like you follow him, he's got the inside pulse to all these other amazing comic book writers and artists. And he'll, he'll be at, you follow him and you'll see who's, who's out there, who's chatty. And you've got like comic book artists were comic book fans once. So they want, they want to talk to you. Absolutely. We are comic book fans. And just because we have these shows and we work on these platforms, we want to hear from everybody. So send us messages. You can follow me at Tricep Boombox. You can go to my website, AR Farina, where you can contact me there. And, um, and we're going to end um, with, I want to be sedated by the Ramones because it feels like the awesome. only ending song for the most punk rock comic book is a Ramones song. So thanks everybody. See you next time. I want